Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 220 of the GDPR Weekly Show, the number one GDPR podcast worldwide. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news that InterServe have been fined £4.4 million by the ICO for failing to keep data secure. We then travel to the City of London, where PFS have announced a data breach. And then to the USA, where Bed Bath & Beyond have announced a data breach. We then have news of a data breach globally at Sea Tickets. And we return to the UK, where Bristol City Council have had a data breach. We then travel to India, where Tartar Power have had a data breach. And then to Australia, where the Woolworths CEO has apologised after the MyDeal data breach, which we brought you details of last week, here on the GDPR Weekly Show. We then travel back to the USA, where the Drizzly data breach has an unusual twist. And then the return to the UK and the High Court claim for data breach damages has been refused and referred back to the small claims procedure. And we examine what sort of precedent this is now setting. We then have news that the Liberal Party of South Australia have had a data breach. And then to Georgia and USA, where Ascension St. Vincent have had a data breach. We then have news from the world of gaming, where Hoyoverse have had a data breach. And then to Australia again, where Medibank have given an update on their data breach. We then have news of a data breach at Thomson Reuters. And then return to Australia yet again, we have news of a data breach at Medlab. We then travel to Ireland, where GDPR has been a cause of some strong language in the Leash County Council Chamber. We then travel to Hungary, where the Hungarian Data Protection Authority has ruled on liability for joint data controllers. And then we have news that the EU-wide Digital Services Act has now been approved and is coming into force in early 2024, so we look at the implications of that. We then have news that Microsoft and German authorities are clashing over GDPR. And then finally this week, we have news that the UK cybersecurity industry is edging towards creation of a chartered professional standard for professionals in the cybersecurity industry. So as always, a wide range of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information in the articles useful and informative. If you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon. InterServe Group has been fined £4.4 million for failing to keep personal information of its staff secure. The ICO found that InterServe failed to put appropriate security measures in place to prevent the cyber attack, which enabled hackers to access the personal data of up to 113,000 employees through a phishing email. It's understood that in May 2020, an InterServe employee forwarded a phishing email, which was not quarantined or blocked by InterServe systems, to another employee who opened it and downloaded its content. This resulted in the installation of malware onto the employee's workstation. The company's antivirus system quarantined malware and sent an alert, but according to the ICO, the company failed to thoroughly investigate the suspicious activity. If it had done so, it would have found that the attacker still had access to the company's systems. The attacker subsequently compromised 283 systems and 16 accounts, as well as uninstalling the company's antivirus system. Personal data of up to 113,000 current and former employees was encrypted and rendered unavailable. The compromised data included personal information such as contact details, national insurance numbers and bank account details, as well as special category data including ethnic origin, religion, details of any disabilities, sexual orientation and health information. The ICO investigation found that InterServe failed to follow up on the original alert of a suspicious activity, used outdated software systems and protocols, and a lack of adequate staff training and insufficient risk assessments, which ultimately all left it vulnerable to a cyber attack. 
UK information commissioner John Edwards said the biggest cyber risk businesses face is not from hackers outside of their company, but from complacency within their company. If your business doesn't readily monitor for suspicious activity in its systems and fail to act on warnings or doesn't update software and fail to provide training to staff, you can expect a similar fine from my office. Leaving a door open to cyber attackers is never acceptable, especially when dealing with people's most sensitive information. This data breach had the potential to cause real harm to intercept staff as it left them vulnerable to the possibility of identity theft and financial fraud. Cyber attacks are a global concern and businesses around the world need to take steps to guard against complacency. All of this is very valid and indeed words which we have often used ourselves. It is really, really important that not only do you have malware and antivirus software in place, but that you actually make sure it's up to date and it's working, and also that you keep your staff regularly updated with training. If you're listening to this and your staff last received GDPR training in 2018, then you really should be contacting us on the contact details that are going to come up in a moment, because your need for refresher training is urgent. And as this ruling from the ICO shows, not keeping yourself up to date with their training could well end up costing you a substantial sum of money. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. Some breaking news and the Personal Finance Society, the PFS, has released the following statement about a data breach this afternoon, which after notifying all its membership is as follows. The Chartered Insurance Institute, CII, informed the Personal Finance Society, PFS, that CII's IT systems have been accessed by an unauthorised third party, which affected some of our members. The Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, was informed and a detailed investigation has been launched immediately. This investigation is now completed and affected PFS members have been informed. We of course take any incident of this nature very seriously and are engaged with the CII on how they are strengthening their cyber defences as an urgent priority. Although we advise that only a limited amount of personal data was accessed, we would always advise PFS members to be especially vigilant when it comes to their cyber security. The PFS leadership advises all members to continue to be cautious in responding to unsolicited emails and closely monitor any suspicious or unusual activity. We've gone back to the PFS to ask them for more detail on this, and when we get that, we will bring it to you in the next verbal episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To America now, and Bed Bath & Beyond said on Friday that a third party had this month improperly accessed its data through a phishing scam by accessing the hard drive and certain shared drives of one of its employees. The big box retailer said it was reviewing the data that was accessed and determined whether the drives contained any sensitive or personally identifiable information. The home goods retailer added there is no reason to believe that any sensitive or personally identifiable information was accessed and this cybersecurity incident would likely not have had a material impact on the company. Shares of the company, once considered a so-called category killer in home and bath goods, were down by about 5% in pre-market trading. Ticketing service provider C-Tickets has disclosed a data breach informing customers that cybercriminals might have accessed their payment card details via a skimmer on its website. Skimmers are snippets of JavaScript code injected on all of the checkout pages to steal inputted payment card details from customers. In this case, people who bought a ticket to a live entertainment event. According to a database notification shared with the Montana Attorney General's Office, C-Tickets discovered the breach in April 2021 when they started an investigation with the help of a forensics firm. However, it wasn't until January 8, 2022 
that the malicious code was fully removed from its site. After engaging with forensic experts and Visa, MasterCard, American Express and Discover to investigate the incident further, CTIS concluded on September 12, 2022 that unauthorised parties that may have accessed customer credit card information. The internal investigation showed the infection happened on June 25, 2019, so the total duration of exposure was just over two and a half years. The customer information that the hackers might have stolen includes the following, full names, physical addresses, zip code, payment card number, card expiration date and CVV number, i.e. the three digits on the back of the card. C-Ticket says social security numbers, state identification numbers or bank account information have not been exposed in this incident as they're not stored on these systems. Due to the type of data the hackers stole, C-Ticket warns that users should be vigilant against unauthorised credit card transactions and identity theft. Threat actors commonly use stolen credit card information to purchase goods from online stores and then sell them to private individuals, so carrying out some money laundering. The proceedings of these sales are often bounced through money mule networks before they reach the crooks to obscure their trace. Additionally, the notice urges the impacted recipients to remain vigilant against phishing emails or other unsolicited communication and monitor credit card statements for suspicious charges. Unfortunately, C-Tickets has not yet offered a free-of-charge identity protection service for the impacted individuals, so exposed customers were left on their own to deal with the consequences of the security breach. The number of impacted customers is currently unknown, and C-Tickets hasn't clarified if Stimmers infected only the global site or any of the other five domains that operate for regional audiences in the US, Canada and Europe. We've reached out to C-Tickets for further information, but at the time of broadcast they've not yet come back to us. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. To Bristol in the UK now, and Bristol City Council has apologised after a data breach relating to clean air zone applications. The incident, which saw around 100 people's email addresses being disclosed in a mass send-out, has been referred to the Information Commissioner's Office. One resident, Phil, from Brislington, was one of those people who was copied into the email last week. He said he submitted his application for a grant ages ago in case he was able to get some support towards a new car. He said that in response he'd received from the council saying he was not eligible for the Clean Air Zones Financial Assistance Scheme, Bristol City Council had cc'd in 95 other people. Straight away, people started responding in the email chain to say that this was a data breach, and later in the day they received an apology from the council. I was just a bit annoyed by it, he went on. They are giving out your personal email as well as an indication of what you earn, which is quite personal information. I think it is carelessness. Somebody clearly just made a mistake. But you would think they would have policies and procedures in place to prevent this from happening. They are most likely to be handling personal data every day. This is bread and butter stuff. It's just frustrating. The email chain shows the council apologising for data breach on the afternoon of October the 17th. It says apologies for sharing email addresses in the previous email. This was sent in error and should have been sent as a blind copy. We've now attempted to recall this email, but please delete this and do not respond to all. This will be reported to our data controller as part of our data protection policy. A spokesperson for Bristol City Council said we're aware of a breach of GDPR has occurred and we've been in contact with those affected and have apologised. This case has been referred to the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, in line with the accepted process for reporting data breaches and we will comply fully with their protocol. If we get any further update from Bristol City Council, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com.
to India now, and the Hive ransomware group has claimed an attack on Tata Power, a leading Indian energy company, and encrypted its systems with ransomware. Hive claims that to have encrypted the systems of the electric utility subsidiary of Tata Group on the 3rd of October at around 7pm, disclosing the attack on the 24th of October in a post on its leaked site. The dump sample files includes employment contracts, supplier contracts, master files on various employees, documents detailing senior executive remuneration packages and more. This comes after Tata Power declared on the 14th of October in a stock exchange filing that it had suffered a cyber attack on its IT infrastructure, impacting some of its IT systems. The company said it had taken steps to retrieve and restore the systems without revealing what kind of attack it was or who had carried out the attack. All critical operational systems are functioning, however, as a measure of abundant precaution, restricted access and preventive checks have been put in place for employee and customer-facing portals and touchpoints, the company said at the time. A number of Tartar Power customers had reported difficulty paying their energy bills on Twitter, with some stating they had been disconnected from the service and not been able to complete the payment. Some also reported they had made the payment but were still receiving calls that their bill hadn't been paid. Hive is one of the most successful ransomware organisations currently in operation, and is run in a similar professional fashion as other high-profile games of past and present, such as Rebel and Lockbit. Once infected, victims are taken to a bespoke portal where there are agents working for Hive that guide victims through the ransom payment process via live chat functionality. Hive is known for its aggressive and unsympathetic approach to negotiating ransom payments, and has been observed using tactics such as a triple extortion, and that has become increasingly popular amongst the most well-resourced groups. The attack on Tartar Power is the latest in a series of attacks carried out by the ransomware organisation. In September, it claimed an attack on the New York Racing Association, the NYRA. The NYRA reported the attack on the 30th of June after learning that its IT operations, website availability and member data had all been compromised. A few days before this, the group claimed responsibility for a data breach at Bell Canada subsidiary Bell Technical Solutions, BTS. The breach exposed personally identified information of its Ontario and Quebec-based customers and compromised and encrypted BTS systems. If we get any update on this from Tata Power, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. In last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we brought news of the data breach at MyDeal.com in Australia. And this week, Woolworths Chief Executive Brad Banducci says the retailer is doubling down on efforts in cybersecurity and moved to assure investors and customers at the supermarket giant's annual meeting that it takes data security seriously. The cyber incident affected 2.2 million MyDeal customers and he apologised unreservedly for the considerable concern that this had caused our affected customers. Mr Banducci said that from now on he would ensure that systems met Woolworths standards before any future deal was completed. Woolworths only took control of my deal in September. We were weeks away from all the remedial action being done to lift it to the standard we would expect of Woolworths, so it wasn't that it was a poor standard, but there were things to be done, Mr Banducci said. But as a major public company, we are going to be targeted. If we ever found ourselves in this situation again, we would make sure that at the point of completion, it was at our standard, not the work was underway to get to our standard. So it's been a real lesson for us. Outgoing chairman Jordan Cairns told shareholders that Woolworths noticed the breach in the CRM system on October the 14th and 24 hours later it was shut down. I can also reiterate, as Brad said, that no passwords, no payment details and no IDs were leaked as a result of that, he added. Woolworths has more than 120 specialists working in cybersecurity. 
Mr. Banducci said the company spent more than $16 million on cyber in this year's budget and between $10 million and $20 million of capital expenditure. This is a big issue. We're doubling down our efforts, he said. To America now, and the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, wants to secure a unique settlement with Drizzly over a 2020 data breach. The unique part is that the settlement terms that follow CEO James Tory Rellis, even if he moves to another company. On October 24th, the FTC announced it was taking action against the online alcohol marketplace and its CEO over allegations the company's security failures led to a data breach exposing the personal information of about 2.5 million consumers in 2020. The FTC alleges that Drizzly and Rellis discovered security problems two years prior to the breach, yet failed to take steps to protect consumers' data from hackers. The FTC's proposed order requires the company to destroy unnecessary data, restricts the data that companies can collect and retain, and binds Rellis to specific data security requirements for his role in presiding over unlawful business practices. In the modern economy, corporate executives frequently move from company to company, notwithstanding blemishes on their track record, the FTC said in a statement. Recognising that reality, the Commission's proposed order will follow Rellis even if he leaves Drizzly. Specifically, Rellis will be required to implement an information security program at future companies if he moves to a business collecting consumer information from more than 25,000 individuals and where he is a majority owner, CEO or senior officer with information security responsibilities. According to the FTC complaint, in 2018, a Drizzly employee posted company cloud computing account logging information on the software development and hosting platform GitHub. As a result of this security breakdown, Hackers were able to use Drizzly's servers to mine cryptocurrency until the company changed its login information. Two years later, a hacker breached an employee's account, received access to Drizzly's corporate GitHub login information, hacked into the company's database, and then stole customer information. Drizzly failed to take steps to adequately address its security problems while publicly claiming to have appropriate security protection in place, the FTC says. The FTC voted by 4 to nil to issue the proposed administrative complaint and to accept the consent agreement with Drizzly and Rellers. Commissioner Christine Wilson voted yes, but dissented in part as to the inclusion of Rellers as an individual defendant. The agreement will be subject to public comment for 30 days, after which the FTC would decide whether to finalise it. Consumers whose personal information may have been affected by the Drizzly data breach were compensated last year following a $7.1 million class action settlement. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. Several times recently here on the GDPR Richard Show, we've talked about courts in the UK and their view on awards of damages where there's no proven material damage following a data breach. Well, we now have news that a case has actually been referred down from the High Court back to the County Court to follow the small claims track. The case, Cleary versus Marston Holdings Limited was ruled to be a low-value data breach case which could be handled by the small claims track. Business defendants will welcome this decision as it reiterates the dim view the courts take against claimants who purport to overstate the complexity of their case. Clearly versus Marston Holdings demonstrates the court's view that low-value data breach claims can and should be dealt with by the small claims track in the county court, not in the high court. A key corollary to this is that fixed cost regime then applies. The decision is another example of the court actively managing data breach claims to ensure they're dealt with at proportionate cost. Other key takeaways from this case are that the breach confidence, misuse of private information and breach of data protection claims are seen as three different ways to characterise the same complaint. 
Courts will give short swift to attainments unnecessary attaining more than one of these in any one action in an attempt to overstate the complexity and costs of a claim. Declarations in media and communication claims are unnecessary and do not justify a claim being allocated to the High Court. Mr Justice Nicklin stated in theory that declarations that are not usually sought in these types of claims and should not be included unless there is an exceptional justification for it. A declaration of these claims would provide no more value to a claimant than a tort judgment. The existence of after-the-event insurance policy premiums or a claimant's agreement with its legal advisors as to costs should not affect the track allocation of a claim. If successful, claimants can benefit from the limited cost recovery on the small claims track, providing the parties have not acted unreasonably. So what happened in this particular case where well, Mr Cleary issued proceedings against Marston for an alleged breach of data protection legislation after an employee of Marston mistakenly sent an email containing information regarding Mr Cleary to a third party. The third party deleted the email on the same day. The only factual point of dispute was whether the email had been read before it was deleted. Mr Cleary instructed his solicitors with an after-the-event insurance policy and arranged a traditional fee arrangement with them which allowed for a success fee. The pleaded value of Mr Cleary's claim was £3,000, but his cost budget for the claim totaled £46,908. At the Cost and Case Management Conference, Mr Justice Nicklin ordered the claim be transferred to the small claims trap because a. there were limited facts in dispute between the parties, b. there were no issues that were too legally complex for a county court judge to determine, c. the claim for declaration was unnecessary, and d. the value of the claim meant it would be ordinarily allocated to small claims track. Mr Cleary's solicitors argued that this raised potential issues in respect of access to justice. They alleged that Mr Cleary would not be able to retain legal support without the availability to recover the after-the-event premiums. Mr Justice Nicklin rejected that argument. He confirmed that the ability to recover costs should not affect the allocation of proceedings. He also noted that no ordinary litigant would incur costs of around £50,000 to pursue a £3,000 claim. So yet again, we see this as an example of where courts are now setting clear precedent on what damages should be expected, where there is no proven material damage. And of course, that's where we very important legal justification. But hopefully, it will reduce the number of opportunistic claims for damages following a data breach. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Australia now, and police are investigating an alleged major data breach involving the private details of about 2,000 members of the South Australian Liberal Party. Detectives are investigating allegations that party officials were impersonated, with names, addresses, phone numbers and other data allegedly stolen. In an email to members on Friday, the party said it had recently received a number of seemingly routine requests for certain membership lists. These requests were subsequently determined to be fraudulently undertaken, involving an electronic impersonation of Liberal Party office bearers entitled to receive membership lists under our constitution, the email said. Liberal Party South Australia State Director Alex May said in a statement the party was disappointed there had been some recent unauthorised access to a number of membership lists. The list contained addresses and phone numbers of approximately 2,000 party members, she said. No financial details were accessed. Affected members have been informed directly and the expert advice received is that the accessing of these contact details is unlikely to create a risk of serious harm to individuals. As a party, we take these matters seriously and have reported the matter to the relevant authorities, including the police. Police issued their own statement on Friday, saying the breach has been reported on Tuesday. Eastern District Criminal Investigation Branch 
have recently commenced an investigation into deception offences which involves the alleged release of details of members of a political party, the statement read. Anyone with information is urged to contact Crime Stoppers. On August 15th this year, Ascension St Vincent's Coastal Cardiology in Brunswick, Georgia, was alerted to a healthcare data breach involving recently acquired Ascension St Vincent's Coastal Cardiology's legacy systems, including electronic medical records. No Ascension networks or systems, including the practice's current electronic medical records, were affected by this incident. The breach impacted 71,227 individuals. The organisation said it immediately secured the legacy network, but some information was encrypted by ransomware. Since the data is still encrypted, Ascension and Vincent's coastal cardiology is currently unable to determine what information had been impacted. However, the legacy records would have contained individual demographic and health information related to visits at coastal cardiology prior to October 5th, 2021, including name address, email address, phone number, and insurance information, as well as social security number, clinical information, and billing and insurance information, the breach notice stated. Ascension said it removes access rights to the legacy system, retrained associates, and initiated a security risk assessment. Wished it was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon. Into the world of gaming now, and Genshin Impact developer Hoyoverse has suffered a massive data breach. Over the weekend, huge batches of information were shared online that revealed details of new characters, quests, and events with versions 3.3 until 3.8. Hoyo versus DMCA Strike Post containing information from the data breach, although any future updates are of course subject to change. However, many Genshin Impact leakers have since removed their posts when personal user data from multiple Hoyoverse QA testers was discovered as part of the breach. After further consideration with friends, I decided to remove all my tweets from today just to be safe, said Lita Ubatcher on Twitter. To make it clear, I do not condone what other methods in which the data was obtained, and I was not involved in obtaining nor distributing new original data. It's believed that the amount of illegally dumped information equates to around 36 weeks of content for the free-to-play live service game. We've contacted Hoyoverse for an update on the situation, but at the time of the end of broadcast, they've not come back to us. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. In last week's episode, we brought you news of the data breach at Medibank in Australia. And this week, Medibank have confirmed that all of its 3.9 million customers have had their data exposed to a hacker. In an update to the Australian Stock Exchange on Wednesday, the company has said that since Tuesday's announcement all customer data may have been exposed, the investigation into the breach has now established a hacker had access to all Medibank, AHM and international student customers' personal data and significant amounts of health claims data. The personal information includes name, address, date of birth, some Medicare card numbers and gender. The health information includes the claim codes made by customers. Medibank still cannot say definitively how many or which customers are affected beyond the 1,000 records provided to the insurer by the hacker in the past two weeks. It is through this communication with the hacker that Medibank has been able to determine the extent of the breach so far. The breach will also affect former customers, with Medibank confirming yesterday that state and territory health record laws require the company to keep data for seven years. Customers will be provided with a hardship financial support package if they are in a uniquely vulnerable position as a result of the hack, and Medibank says it will reimburse customers for costs associated with the reissuing of ID documents for those that were compromised in the hack. The hack is likely to cost the company a minimum of between $25 million and $35 million, Medibank said. 
This is due to Medibank not having cyber-attack insurance, and this estimated cost does not include customer compensation or regulatory or legal costs that may be brought against the company. Medibank is in communication with a hacker who obtained stolen Medibank credentials from another hacker on a Russian cyber-criminal forum, but the company has declined to say whether it would pay any ransom demands that have been made. In a call with investors on Wednesday, Medibank's Head of Technology and Operations, John Goodall, said that the company had deployed monitoring tools on its network, and those tools suggest the hacker is no longer in the company's systems. Medibank's Chief Executive, David Totsar, said there was no evidence that credit card information had been compromised, but he would not rule it out. We have no evidence that credit card data has been removed, he said, but I would be very clear to say we are continuing to investigate, and as soon as it becomes clear to us if that changes, we will make it clear. He said the information the company had been able to obtain about the attack it had been through communications with the hacker, who showed evidence of battle was obtained. In a statement to the stock exchange, Totsar apologised unreservedly to customers. This is a terrible crime. This is a crime designed to cause maximum harm to the most vulnerable members of our community, he said. Medibank announced on Tuesday it would delay premium increases for all customers until the end of January 2023. On Wednesday, the company said this would cost around $62 million, which would be offset by savings the company made during the COVID-19 pandemic. The whole hack is under investigation by the Australian Federal Police. If we receive any further update from Medibank or from the Australian Federal Police, we will just bring it to you right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Thomson Reuters, a multinational media conglomerate, left an open database with sensitive customer and corporate data, including third-party server passwords in plain text format. Attackers could use the details for a supply chain attack. The Cyber News research team found that Thomson Reuters left at least three of its databases accessible for anyone to look at. One of the open instances, the three-terabyte public-facing Elasticsearch database, contains a trove of sensitive, up-to-date information from across the company's platforms. The company recognised the issue and fixed it immediately. Thomson Reuters provides customers with products such as the business-to-business media tool Reuters Connect, legal research services and database Westlaw, the tax automation system OneSource, online research suite of editorial and source materials Checkpoint, and other business tools. The size of the open database the team discovered corresponds with the company using Elasticsearch, a data store is favoured by enterprises dealing with extensive, constantly updated volumes of data. It's understood that the media giant, with $6.35 billion in revenue, left at least three of its databases open. At least three terabytes of sensitive data exposed, including Thomson Reuters plain text passwords to third-party servers. The data company collects is a treasure trove for threat actors likely worth millions of dollars on underground criminal forums. The company immediately fixed the issue, and started notifying their customers. Thomson Reuters downplayed the issue, saying it affects only a small subset of Thomson Reuters' global trade customers. The dataset was open for several days. Malicious bots are capable of discovering instances within just a few hours. Threat actors could use the leak for attacks from social engineering attacks to ransomware. Meanwhile, Thomson Reuters claims that out of the three misconfigured servers the team identified and informed the company about, two were designed to be publicly accessible. The third server was a non-production server meant for application logs from the pre-production implementation environment. Timestamps on data samples reviewed by the team indicate that the information was logged recently, with some pieces of data as recent as October 26th. According to researchers, the logs in the open database contain sensitive information and could lead to supply chain attacks if accessed by threat actors. Another piece of sensitive information includes SQL, structured query language logs, 
that show what information Thompson Reuters clients were looking for. The records also indicate what information the query brought back. The team has also discovered that the open database included an internal screening of other platforms, such as YouTube, Thompson Reuters clients' access logs, and connection streams to other databases. The exposure of connection streams is particularly dangerous because the company's internal network elements are exposed, enabling threat actors lateral movement and pivoting through Reuters Thompson's internal systems. Back to Australia now, an Australian clinical lab has disclosed the February 2022 data breach that impacted its med lab pathology business, exposing the medical records and other sensitive information of 223,000 people. Australian Clinical Labs is an Australian healthcare company that operates 89 laboratories and performs 6 million tests annually, offering its services to 92 private and public hospitals across Australia. While the firm says it's not aware of any misuse of the stolen information, it is notifying all impacted clients individually of what data was exposed in the attack. A data breach incident notification published today gives the following summary of leaked data. 128,608 Medicare numbers along with full names, 28,286 credit card numbers, 12% of which include the CVV codes, the three numbers off the back of the card, but of which 55% had already expired, 17,539 individual medical and health records associated with pathology tests, Australian Cyber Security Centre, the ACASC, and the Office of the Information Commissioner, the OAIC, have already been notified about the incident earlier in the year, with ACSC initially warning MedLab that hackers posted their data to the dark web. All impacted individuals will also be offered free of charge credit monitoring and identity theft protection services, while ACL will cover the cost of ID document replacements where needed. The ransomware gang that took responsibility for the attack on MedLab pathology is Quantum, which uploaded all stolen files onto its Tor site on June 14, 2022. The threat actors leaked 86 gigabytes of data, including patient employee details, financial reports, invoices, contracts, forms, subpoenas, and other private documents. According to Quantum Ransomware's website, the data leak page for MedLab has been accessed 130,000 times. MedLab have sought to explain the reason for the delay in releasing the information about the data breach, and they say that they detected unauthorized access to their network in February 2022, but the firm conducted a forensic investigation which they said they didn't reveal anything worrying. In March 2022, ACSC contacted ACL after receiving intelligence the incident they had suffered was a ransomware attack. In June 2022, the ACSC notified MedLab that the ransomware gang posted the stolen data to a data leak site. So according to the company, it took them roughly five months to even realise someone had exfiltrated files from their systems. As for the four months from that point until today's disclosure, ACL said the data set was too complicated to quickly determine which customers had been affected. If we get any update on this from MedLab, we will transmit it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. To Ireland now, and GDPR was a cause for some strong language in the Chamber of Leeds County Council. A Leeds County Council is again demanding immediate live stream of council meetings claiming that it was agreed 16 months ago but has still not been implemented. A new microphone system has recently been added to Leash County Council Chambers and three cameras have been installed, but councillors have yet to agree to roll the cameras for the public to view their public meetings online. Councillor Councillor Aileen Moran has rejected any objection over GDPR as bullshit in a heated debate at the October Council meeting and said she is peed off. Councillor Moran said she had tabled a motion 16 months ago 
requested in live streaming to the public through the monthly council meetings, which opened to the public to attend in the public gallery. That motion had been seconded, and the council agreed to consider it. This October, she tabled another motion urging the council to implement the measure. 30 days is a reasonable length of time for a resolution, Councillor Moran said. She said that she had consulted a barrister and sent a Section 140 notice to the council to get the streaming implemented. She asked why that order was rejected. She asked for a roll call at the meeting of councillors to vote on live streaming. We put our names forward to represent the public. In the interest of transparency and accountability, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. If 14 other council councils can do it, and you we can't because of GDPR, that is bullshit, Councillor Moran said. She was asked not to use that sort of language by the chairman, Councillor Thomasine O'Connell. In reply to the motion, the least county council said the video cameras are now installed in the council chambers, but the councillors have not yet agreed to live streaming, and they will first have to amend the standing orders. Councillor Connell said the Section 140 was dismissed by the CBG committee made up of councillors. We felt it wasn't the appropriate mechanism, she said. Councillor Catherine Fitzgerald proposed to form a subcommittee of six councillors representing all political groups to discuss the matter first. I don't think with data protection you can force people. It was agreed at the last meeting it was proposed to look at it, she said. Councillor Seamus MacDonald seconded her proposal. Last December 2021, Director of Services Donald Brennan had said substantial protocols would have to be developed before live cameras could be rolled. It will first be cleared by the CPG and then the council chamber, he said. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. An interesting ruling from Hungary regarding the role of data controllers for joint controllership and the retention of data. In 2021, the Hungarian Data Protection Authority initiated proceedings against a bank and its subsidiary, which specialised in providing mortgage loans. The focus of the investigation was a practice that is common in the Hungarian loan market. As a first filter, financial institutions often carry out a preliminary credit scoring to decide whether a borrower is eligible for an official credit scoring that is based on the submission of authentic documents, or the application is to be rejected without further assessment. Of course, banks are processing personal data during this preliminary credit scoring. The Hungarian DPA found that it is unlawful to process personal data provided by the data subject during the preliminary credit scoring assessment in case the data subject's loan application is rejected, and therefore no official credit score evaluation occurred. More precisely, it said no legitimate interest could be found under which such processing, i.e. the keeping of the data after the preliminary storing had been completed, could be deemed as lawful, and no other legal basis seems to be appropriate. In cases of joint controllers, control in terms of company law over an entity by the other joint controller is relevant when assessing data protection liability. Besides the relatively high fine of €73,000, an eye-catching conclusion of this case is that even if certain group entities are qualified as joint controllers, their responsibility is not equal, and such inequality may involve that one of the joint controllers is fined when the other is not. The finding seems to be in line with the practice of the Court of Justice of the European Union. It held in the Fashion ID case that the existence of joint liability does not necessarily imply equal responsibility of the various operators engaged in the processing of personal data. On the contrary, those operators may be involved at different stages of that processing of personal data and to different degrees, with the result that the level of liability of each of them must be assessed with regard to the relevant circumstances of a particular case. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The Digital Services Act, the DSA, was given the go-ahead by the EU Council on the 27th of October and will enter into force by early 2024. The DSA ushered in wide-ranging obligations of digital platforms, digital platforms increasingly trade in personal data. 
In return for user interfaces with easy functionality, platforms receive personal data and facilitate online advertising. The EU is recognising with the DSA that a transaction happens when we use free online services and that users need protection. The DSA is part of a suite of new measures including the Audiovisual Media Services Directive which will sit alongside GDPR. The DSA complements the GDPR and makes use of the concepts in GDPR which have already become familiar to businesses and individuals alike. The DSA's rules will apply to online platforms, search engines and hosting services, all of which are broadly defined. This will include household online platforms with which we are familiar, such as online marketplaces, social media platforms and household name search engines. One of the important rules is that there are important new rules protecting minors from targeted advertising. Online platforms must now ensure security and safety of minors on their platforms. Of course, we've had this here in the UK through the children's toes or the age-appropriate design toad, as it's known across the rest of Europe. New rules are welcome and provide for a clear ban on presenting advertising to minors, which is based on profiling of their personal data. This is a case where the online platform is aware or should have a reasonable certainty that a person is indeed a minor. Separately, the use of so-called special category data as referred to in Article 9, Paragraph 1 of GDPR, is now prohibited for targeted advertising with no exempting legal basis provided for. This means, for example, that people should not be targeted by ads which use their vulnerabilities to sell goods and services. This could be particularly relevant, of course, in the case of suppliers of uh, supplements, for example. The DSA builds on the extensive existing protections in GDPR. Online platforms will now be obliged to ensure that recipients of a service are entitled to information on the main parameters of why a specific advert is being presented to them. Taking a step back, this means that the digital platforms must be transparent with its end users where personal profiling is in use. Users of a service will now also be entitled to have individualised information enabling them to know when and on whose behalf a targeted ad has been presented. This information must be provided for every user and this could present a significant operational challenge for online platforms. Now, of course, it's important to point out that the DSA does not come into force until early 2024, so we have got a little bit of a window, but we all know how quickly time passes. And so it's important if you are involved in behavioural advertising in particular, that you start thinking now about how the implementation of DSA is going to affect you. And of course, if you need any help with that, please do get in touch with us using the contact details that are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. GDPR has created a conflict between Germany and Microsoft because the latter allegedly violates GDPR rules. Microsoft is storing personal data in cloud servers off-premise rather than in on-premise local data centers. This has caused Germany to outright ban Microsoft 365 in some regions. Many American multinational companies have been out of compliance with GDPR since the introduction of the Clarifying Lawful Overseas Use of Data Cloud Act in 2018. The Cloud Act states that the US government can freely sift through anyone's data, including non-US citizens. The US Cloud Act of 2018 is extremely controversial in the US and the EU due to its violations of the Fourth Amendment, which protects citizens from unlawful searches and seizures. Under this act, US agencies such as the FBI and the CIA can request access to users' data without their knowledge. Many civil rights groups such as Amnesty International have criticised the Cloud Act. The Cloud Act ultimately opens up access for the US government to data on any non-US citizen. The EU, and particularly Germany, have informed Microsoft of some actions that they believe Microsoft should take to resolve these issues. The first is that Microsoft should only be used locally on-premise servers to store personal data. They also say that the Cloud Act shouldn't have any impact on non-US citizen data, and Microsoft should address the issue of failing to protect the data of minors. 
While Microsoft needs to resolve these issues, French and German schools are opting for Linux operating systems. This is because Windows and Apple systems collect telemetry data, which violates GDPR. Everyone is now putting data up in the cloud, of course. However, if a European company wants to continue using products from American companies, they need to find a way that's GDPR compliant. Using an on-premise service, of course, one option, but of course there's also the standard contractual clauses and the binding corporate rules. If we get any update on this from Microsoft, we will explain to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. And finally this week, the UK Cyber Security Council, the self-regulated body for the UK cyber security profession, has announced the launch of a pilot scheme for introducing a new chartered professional standard for the sector. The scheme would give UK cyber practitioners the opportunity to become chartered professionals for the first time, bringing cyber in line with other established professions such as accounting, engineering and law. The pilot has been launched in the specialisms of cyber security and governance and risk management and secure systems architecture and design, with industry bodies ISC and the Chartered Institute of Information Security confirmed as initial partners. A number of security professionals says chartered standard for cybersecurity would benefit the UK industry, while the latest cybersecurity workforce study reveals that the global cybersecurity workforce shortage has now reached 3.4 million people. The aim of the pilot is to test the introduction of a universally recognised professional standard for three professional titles, associate, principal and chartered, the council stated. By doing so, the council aims to create a clearer career route map for those looking to enter the cybersecurity industry, as well as professionals already working in the sector. It also aims to address the fact that several cybersecurity qualifications, certifications and degrees currently exist without any uniform equivalency or defined pathway linking them together, the council added. At this initial stage, ISC and CIISEC will be responsible for assessing applications from their membership base against a new standard which seeks to present those working in the profession with an independent seal of approval and recognition of their competence. Professor Simon Hepburn, CEO of the UK Cyber Security Council, said the council is committed to working with stakeholders from across the industry with the aim of creating a world-class cyber sector in the UK. The key to achieving this is the establishment of a framework and aligned professional standard across the industry's disciplines, he said. We will also need a better understanding of skill sets and experience and a way of demonstrating an adherence to industry best practice and ethical standards. The pilot programme will be a significant step in the right direction, Hepburn said, and will be crucial to the council's objectives of crafting a new framework for a clear and robust professional standard in the sector. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com We hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show and that you found the information useful and informative. We do really appreciate your feedback, so please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com with any comments you might have about the articles we've raised this week or indeed any suggestions you might have for improvements to the show. The GDPR Weekly Show is a insurance production. Please be advised that any advice given during the show is general in nature and should be not be taken as specific legal advice. You should always seek legal advice according to your own specific circumstances. Until next time, bye-bye.